Yes, hello folks, welcome to our weekly episode of the Global Football Show. I'm joined here with my co-host, fantastic Zach Lowy. Of course, you can find Zach at BTL, Breaking the Lines and all other uh, his podcasts. You can find him at his own um, uh, Twitter Twitter handle at Zach Lowy and of course on Beyond the Pits everywhere else. So much to talk about today. Of course, we're the first podcast we've done since the season's pretty much started, starting across Europe. So many things to talk about related to that. We're going to preview a couple of young players and uh, we'll talk a little bit about some things that are going on in the transfer market, what to expect between now and the end of the window. We'll take a look at some of the leagues across Europe and have a discussion about what to expect. Uh, and now I want to ask Zach about Kylian Mbappe's behaviour at the weekend um, uh, and, of course, his uh, his issue with uh, Neymar uh, allegedly having a fight in training. Um, we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll preview some other of these fantastic young players. Uh, and I want to ask Zach, because there's no better resource for Portuguese football than this man about Matthias Nunes, of course, who has just gone to Wolves. Uh, fantastic place for young Portuguese players who this kid is very highly rated. I think Pep Guardiola called him the best young midfielder in the world. You've done a fantastic article on him, Zach, on your website, which was really, really interesting. I didn't realise he was a young kid to come over from Brazil um, to Portugal at such a young age. And, of course, was developed through the fantastic sporting system. I uh, will take a little look of what uh, happened Tottenham Chelsea last week too. So first of all, mate, how are you doing? It's all doing very well. Excited to be back. And yeah, just two things before uh, that I've recorded over the past two days. Really excited to be publishing on BTL. Uh, I interviewed Greville Winterburn, Winterburn uh, the author of Just a Bus Stop in Hounslow, a book about the history of Brentford, their rise mm. through England's uh, footballing divisions, how World War II put an end to their first glory days and how they returned to the top flight. Really interesting book. Um, so really excited for that interview, as well as uh, the latest Cortellinius podcast that I recorded today with Irish uh, commentator Mark Rodden. So really excited for both of that. Um, and really excited for today's show. He'll be drinking Guinness, my friend, and have a broke by the end of the week. <laughs> Uh, so lots to talk about. Uh, I'm going to start with Matthias Nunes, uh, and I want to also say a massive thank you to you for getting the pronunciation right. Um, this may sound like a, a minor point, but it's actually not. Um, so you know, my family, you know, my, my wife is Hispanic. Um, one of the things that absolutely grates on her is when people say Martinez. <laughs> It's just like, why can't they just say it right? It's not Martin S, right? Uh, so uh, it is important that the pronunciation is right. Matthias Nunes, tell me all about this kid, because if I read correctly, Pep Guardiola called him the best young midfielder in the world. Absolutely. So, yeah, Matthias Nunes uh, was born in Rio de Janeiro, uh, to, I believe, a Portuguese father and a Brazilian mother. May have that the other way around. But uh, grew up in a poor area of Rio. Uh, father abandoned the family at a young age. So really, it had to kind of be the man of the house. His mother said in an, inter in an interview, um, I still don't know how he did not become a drug dealer or a hoodlum or a thief. Um, and so, yeah, moved out of Brazil at 12 years old, went to uh, Lisbon and uh, was with his stepfather and uh, mother 
in, in playing for this local side, Eric Rens, whilst also helping out in uh, his parents' bakery, and eventually ends up joining Estoril, uh, spends little time there, and joins Sporting after impressing in a cup match against uh, Sporting, joins for, I believe, 950,000 euros um, for, I think, a 20-year-old 20, 20 Mateus. Um, and a little, you know, a year or so after that, Sporting pay uh, an initial fee of 10 million euros, later around 14 million euros for Ruben Amorim, a manager with two months of top flight experience at Braga. And at the time, you know, Frederic Verandas, the sporting president, getting a lot of criticism. Why are you paying so much money for this unproven manager? And he says, Mateus Nunes himself will pay for Ruben Amorim. Okay, so this this 21-year-old Mateus Nunes, who has not even debuted for sporting yet, saying that he alone will pay for the 11 million, or, you know, later 14 million, whatever, uh, for Ruben Amorim. Mm. Debuts at Project Restart, um, you know, sporting finish fourth, not a great season for them, but following season, go on to win their first league title in 19 years. Mateus uh, becoming a good super sub off the bench for Sporting. Um, and then the following se- the following summer, it seemed like Sporting would re-sign Joao Mario, who had impressed in this loan spell. Uh, they actually let him go to Benfica because they want to bet on this kid, this Mateus Nunes, who ends up having a breakthrough season alongside Joao Paulinha in the first half of the season, later Manuel Ugarte in the final months. Um, and overall just becoming really important for sporting. I do feel like his level dropped off a little bit after Pep Guardiola made those comments. I do feel like they perhaps boosted his ego and made him uh, you know, slouch up a mm. bit. So, um, but, you know, st- ends up staying for the summer. It looks like with Paulinha leaving to Fulham, sporting were going to be able to uh, keep hold of him. In fact, Mateus had rejected several offers from Wolves. Um, but, you know, Mateus ends up joining them for 45 million euros plus 5 million uh, in add-ons, which is below his 60 million euro release clause. Personally, I feel like Sporting, if they had held on to him following a World Cup year, I feel like there's a good chance they could have gotten more for it. But uh, yeah, and I think to add ins- insult to injury, this comes just days before Sporting's match against Porto at the Estadio de Regal. There's really nobody with Mateus's, you know, combination of what he can provide to Sporting. You know, he's a physically gifted player. I think, you, you know, his intensity as well as his power and confidence to just drive forward. That's what he loves to do, you know, get past pressure. You only have to see his assist uh, in the 3-3 draw on opening day against Braga, where he just drives past, uh, you know, a ton of Braga players using his great dribbling, his his physicality to get forward and launching a ball uh, to Nuno Santos. So, you know, he's really developed both as a passer, but I think that one area where Mateus could take a real leap forward uh, is is in terms of his getting into the final third and getting mm. goals. You know, he's a player who 
we've seen can find the back of the net, um, you know, as seen last weekend. He's a player who who does score some really good goals. If he can become that uh, player who can get into the edge of the box and, you know, link up with forwards and really uh, become that goal-scoring presence, I really do feel like he could become one of the best central midfielders in Europe. Um, yeah. He has got an interesting international story because Tite tried to call him up to the Brazilian national team. Uh, he refused to call up, from what I understand, due to not being vaccinated for COVID because um, they're on a quarantine on the way back. Uh, and I understand that he, so he, of course, Fernando Santos ended up calling him up for Portugal. So now he's a Portuguese international. Um, so he didn't represent the country of birth. He's now Portuguese international. Um, is that is that correct? Yeah, so Mateus had interest from both Portugal and Brazil. I do not have information whether or not he is vaxxed or, or what, but uh, yeah, had interest from both of the Celesois, um, and he eventually just picked Portugal, you know, his adopted country, going from a pretty difficult childhood in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro to, you know, Lisbon, playing for a number of clubs, playing for sporting. I, I think that, you know, one way or another, Portugal, Portugal won that race, and Mateus and has has played um, a few, quite a few games over the past few months for Portugal, and I, I do think that right now, if if he has a good few start few months at Wolves, I I would expect him to be on the plane for a cutter. How does he play with Ruben Neves? Do, I mean, do they complement each other? Are they different players? What I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting one, Phil, because I feel like. Looking at those two players, Ruben Nevsh and Matheus Nunes, neither of them is a real holding midfielder. You know, neither of them can do the dirty work that, for example, Joao Palinha might bring. Um, but with that being said, players, midfield players, have that ability to adapt to each other's similarities. You know, we've seen that in the past. Nemanja Matic and N'Golo Kante, uh, Jorginho Vajnaldum and Fabinho, you know, so many players who can kind of sh shift their game to meet the needs. Of, and I think that uh, this is another, this could be another example of that. You know, I think that Mateus, what he brings is more dynamism going forward in terms of dribbling, in terms of physical power. I feel like Ruben, perhaps more of a uh, passer, but I also think, he's a little better than Mateus in terms of getting forward and, and getting onto the end of those shots, you know? So I think that that, I think that interestingly enough, I think that they could work. I think that Mateus as well, he is no slouch defensively. You know, that's something that he has had to work on uh, following Joel Mario's departure to become a starter in midfield under Ruben Amorim, you know, always getting back to defend the counter and, using his physicality to keep the high pressure up. Um, so overall, I, I think that it's something, I think that it's something that in theory could work. I have my question marks about their defensive ability as a duo, but uh, I think that Mateus will end up phasing out Joao Moutinho in the starting mm -hmm. lineup fairly quickly and uh, starting alongside Ruben Neves in the double pivot. Let me ask you, because you said something there that was quite interesting. You said he had turned down a number of initial offers from Wolves. Um, obviously, we know Wolves is a great place for Portuguese players. You know, Bernard Lodge is there. 
Um, he, um, forgive me if I butcher on these pronunciations, I mean, to get me. Um, but um, he's there, of course. Uh, Wolves are a good club, good club of Portuguese players, a good transition for Portuguese players in the Premier League. Um, but if you're talking about one of the best young players in the world, whether Pep Guardiola meant that or not, or is exaggerated or not. Why Why was none of the major top teams? Was there something putting them off him? Or, or what do you think? Listen, I mean, I think that the price tag was perhaps a factor. I think that as well, the inconsistency potentially played a factor. You know, these teams, they follow every single game. And, you know, they, they realize that after, I think, uh, Pep Guardiola's comments, Mateus's form took a real downturn. Um, and I think that, that inconsistency was certainly something that put a lot of teams off, as well as uh, the fee. But Wolves, you know, being able to snatch a player like Mateus, it, it really says one thing. The Premier League is the biggest attraction in the world, mm-hmm. okay? You know, you may not be able to get to an Arsenal or a Manchester City or a Liverpool. Or a- you're going to be able to play against those teams, Every Saturday or Sunday, you're going to showcase your talents in the most watched sports league in the world. Sort of reminds me a bit of Syria in the 80s. I mean, I remember watching, even if the, the bottom teams in the table had a superstar, one of the best young players, one of the best players in the world. I remember doing an interview with uh, Previn Larson Alkiar, and um, of course, won Syria. And uh, and I was just looking at the players that were in Syria at that time. Doesn't matter what club you were at, um, someone had they were the best players in the world were there. But we've talked about this before, Zach. Um, still seems like despite the English Premier League being the main attraction, best players in the world still want to go to Spain to me. Is that so, really? Well, do you, well, I mean, you take a look at Barcelona. Barcelona had their pick of Chelsea players this summer. Right? Once they got involved with Kunde. They picked them off, right? Okay. And you take a look at um, Frankie De Jong's situation. I mean, Frankie De Jong looks like he'd rather do six months in Fulton than go to England. Right? You take a look at when the last time a player from England won a Ballon d'Or, 2001, Michael Malone. Right? Um, you know, it seems to me that England still has a problem attracting the very, very top. Or Spain is still the most attractive destination. I mean, once Barcelona's type money... They, they, they could do what they wanted. Yeah, no, that, 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 that is fair enough. But I also think, look at the other way around. You've got players like Casemiro, like yeah. Rafael Varane. Given the chance to continue at Real Madrid, they end up testing themselves in a new adventure. It certainly looks like Casemiro is set to join uh, Manchester United. We'll see what happens with that. But, I mean, looking at La Liga, okay, fair enough. You've got Robert Lewandowski. Rafinha, Jules Koundé, players who rejected Chelsea for Barcelona as well as other Premier League sides. Fair enough. But that being said, I I think looking at the quantity of big-name transfers as well as the quality, I think that the Premier League is still overpowering them in many aspects. But, yeah. Let me ask you quickly about Casemiro because sort of left field that one. What 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 uh, what should United fans expect from him? Listen, on paper, I think that this makes a lot of sense for Manchester United. I think that 
He is that ball-winning midfielder that they have been looking for. I think, you know, with regards to this entire transfer saga on Frankie Dion, I think that the continuing question has been, well, they still need that ball-winning presence mm -hmm. alongside him, right? Because it's not, it hasn't been Scott McTominay or Fred. You know, they needed some player who can not just bring that dynamism off the ball, but is going to provide a lot going forward in possession. A player who, you know, is a leader. A player who, uh, just in 2019, cut his vacations short after a week after Real Madrid lost 7-3 in preseason to Atletico Madrid. Real Madrid end up going to win the league title and have a great season. So I think that that is who Casemiro is. He is a true professional who has worked so hard to get where he is today, who has really showcased that. For me, stood out for the first time at Porto uh, on loan under Julian Lopetegui and uh, went to Real Madrid, made himself a key presence in midfield. And, you know, perhaps the ugly duckling of that Bermuda Triangle midfield, you know, doing the dirty work in midfield, the mala leche, as the Spaniards call it. <laughs> And, uh, you know, becoming that consistent presence. You know, you look at his big games, you look at his finals. Yes, you have, uh, I think, a lot of fouls that deserved red cards that for some reason uh, he had a gravity in, in getting away with. But uh, we'll, see, we'll see how that disciplinary record holds up in England. But overall, a player who, you know, I, I, it has not been injury prone, a player who, despite some struggles in form, has delivered uh, in big games over last season for Los Blancos. So it's an interesting one. I also feel like, on the other hand, you know, for Real Madrid, this could be another example of when they know the right mm -hmm. time to sell their yeah. players. Yep. I would agree with that. I mean, I think uh, both probably a deal that suits both parties. Real Madrid gets 60 million for a player that's 30. Uh, they've already brought in Chuamani. They've already brought in Camavinga um, to replace. And they'll need to start moving on Modric and Cruz eventually. They've got Valverde in there. They've got a very, very good midfield. So not, I think uh, it's a deal that probably suits both parties because United have a desperate need for that type of player right now, on top of which they need a, a technical uh, midfielder that can play from the back. Um, I want to ask you about a situation that was relatively predictable, I suppose, in some sense. Um, when Kylian Mbappe got his new contract at uh, PSG, there was a consensus, uh, certainly a large widely held view, that this was insanity from PSG to turn over control of the football club to him. Um, now, it wouldn't be the first player that this has happened to. And we take a look at the Cristiano Ronaldo situation at Manchester United, where a player has been overly indulged, uh, gets maybe too much control of the dressing room. Um, was this a, was this a ways to say? And we saw his petulance at the weekend. Um, you know, which I don't think I've I can't recall seeing that on a football pitch before, where a player I've, I've seen it on a, on a football pitch at you know on a Sunday league team. You know, but I, I can't recall ever seeing that uh, at at that level. I was listening to Frank LeBouf talk about. Killing Mbappe situation, saying, "Look, this is you know, Platini was indulged at Juventus. It was integral to a lot of the decisions that were made. Was Johan Cruyff was integral to things that were happening at Ajax, involved in a lot of the major decisions that were made. This is this has been going on for years, and maybe that's fair comment. Um, 
But the question is, what punitive measures can you really take against a player while you've basically given him the keys? Listen, I mean, yeah, that what we saw at the weekend uh, from Kylian Mbappe was inexcusable. I know that there were reports of a familial issue, um, so we'll see what happens next game. But overall, he needs to improve as a teammate, as a leader. It's a player who is not going to complain when he and and stop in the middle of a play when he doesn't get the pass that he was requesting. You know, he needs to be a better teammate with that regard. Um, that being said, Kylian Mbappe was by a mile Paris Saint-Germain's best player last season. They needed to do whatever it took to secure him, even if that was just getting a three-year deal, even if that was giving him a ton of control financially um, in terms of his contract as well as his uh, control in the future of the club. But as you mentioned, PSG, they are, I think, running a fine line here. You know, you have to make that clear that to Mbappe, that he is not going to be able to get away with petulant performances, getting away with being a bad teammate uh, and thinking that he is better than the group. You know, you have to make it clear um, that he is not above them. But overall, it's tricky. What can you do? Suppose you could suspend him. You could fine his pay. Um, but there is not much that you can do that I think is, is going to not do that much damage to your team. You got to remember Mbappe is probably the club's most consistent, most important attacker right now. A player who delivers and has delivered over the past few years. You know, you do not want to lose him for an extended period of time. That being said, uh, this behavior needs to change. The thing is, uh, the only thing I can find that's analogous to this in sports is the LeBron James situation, where LeBron James is front office as well with the LA Lakers, which I'm not sure that's a smart decision. He's still a player, um, and you still have to retain the respect of your teammates. And I'm looking at this and going, how smart the decision? I mean, what can Christophe Galtier really do uh, whenever this player steps out of line? Um there's been all sorts of rules that have been contravened and broken that are, you know, that, that, that are lines you know not to cross in sports. Uh, I was reading an article about the Formula One team, Ferrari, who were looking at um, how white teams feel, great teams feel, and they were looking at some of the principles they start to compromise, such as the focal point within a football club. We'll use this we'll away football from it. it has to be the manager. The manager has to be the guy that has control of the dressing room, the, the tail can't wag the dog. We know that, that there's so many major uh, brands, egos, I suppose, inside PSG. Neymar, of course, being one of them. Um, how on earth do you get any type of unity in that dressing room whenever you've got players that are being told you're more important and better than everyone else and you're going to be treated differently and you can pretty much do what you want. I, 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 I don't understand how that's a recipe for success. Listen, I mean, it is not easy. I think that there are really few managers in football history who have been able to manage that many egos and get a consistent winning formula. I'm thinking about Carlo Ancelotti, Zinedine Zidane, Sir Alex Ferguson, Pep Guardiola, you know, and I, I'm trying to think of who else. 
you know, not not many. Um, mm. It's a tough job for Christophe Galtier, who let's remember has only managed at Saint Etienne, mm-hmm. Lille, and Nice, not clubs who are known for having any superstars, let alone four or five. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it it is something that I think both Galtier, Campos, Luis Campos, and the club need to make it clear to the players that you know you need to behave. You need to, this. This is not a vacation, right? We've seen that plenty of times with Neymar leaving for Brazil for two months midway through the season to go on uh, Carnival in in mm-hmm. Brazil. So I think that kind of behavior. You know, treating it um, essentially jogging through the season that needs to change. And admittedly, it is tough when PSG, so many of their seasons, the title is wrapped up by February. Um, I think that that is that is a factor that has really hurt them in Europe in terms of their ability to stay focused and you know stay consistent. You brought up a really important point that makes me transition and segue to my next point about Neymar going to Carnival. Now, the Brazilian players are notorious for this, always have been. You know, the real Carnival, uh, you know, I remember a story uh, about Romario at Barcelona, um, wanted to go to El Carnival, was told that, um, you know, if he scored a hat trick, he could go. Come on, scored a hat trick, get taken off from one on the plane to El Carnival. Yeah, we have a really deal around this coming out saying that he doesn't want to send any more African players to the AFCON. There seems to be a very, very different narrative about African players going and representing their country uh, in competitions. Not their fault it's scheduled or when it's scheduled. Um, this seems to me uh, grossly unfair. Listen, I find the entire discourse about the AFCON scheduling just absolutely ridiculous and absolutely ignorant to African club football, their scheduling. Uh, and, you know, look, the AFCON is no different from the Euros or Copa mm-hmm. America or the Asian Games. Players have to play whenever it's time, you know, whenever they are called up to serve their country. And to ask them to prioritize club football over something that they've been dreaming about for so long, it's, it's absolutely despicable to me. Um, it's, expe- it's absolutely despicable from Aurelio De Laurentiis. In an owner who has seen his club, Napoli, have so much success due to African players, whether mm-hmm. it's awesome and Andre Frank Zambo Angisa or Victor Osimen. You know, you look at Kulabali, what kind of message are you sending to those players? I find it absolutely despicable. Yeah, it seems to me this is something that's been spoken about for a, for a long time, and it um, African players have been punished for this on very unfairly in the past. Um, and look, it's really, really important. I remember speaking to Stephen Appiah about this. Uh, it's really, really important for African players, as it is for South Americans and many others, to represent their country. These are icons to young kids, and and uh, one of the things that African players do, probably more than any other is when their career is over, they do a lot of humanitarian work. They go back to their particular regions that they came from. They give so much back. We've seen what George Weah has done. And you can't underestimate how important this is for people in these particular regions. Um, 
they're not getting contracts at top football clubs because of a community outreach program. They're getting them because they're exceptional football players, exceptional athletes who provide enormous value, enormous profit to these football clubs. Napoli have profited greatly from selling these players, buying them relatively cheap, selling these players. There's also another hidden problem with this, where a lot of young African kids are trafficked into Europe on the promise of big contracts and end up getting ditched in Belgium and Turkey and everywhere else. And uh, they're sitting there 18, 19, haven't been lied to. And, uh, you know, I think that the discourse around African football is, I mean, it's it, it's not borderline. It is racist. There's no question about it. Um, and, you know, we're about to have a World Cup smack bang in the middle of a season, you know. Um, and so I just think it's totally unfair. It's pejorative uh, on African players. And um, I'm going to ask you about another one of them, uh, about another one of these young, young, young players that I think is exceptional talent come from that region uh, a, a little bit later in the show. But um, I, I just think that um, something needs to be done because I think it's totally unfair how they're characterised. And, and you know something, Zach? It's normalised on so many different levels. I hear commentators talking about this. It's a problem, right? It's not a problem. You know, I mean... Certainly, whenever other players go off and play for their countries, and you know, I remember Michael Owen signing for Newcastle, goes to the place for England, ruptures his cruciate ligament in his first game, ends up being out for nine months. You know, there was no discussion then about the damage of playing international football and the impact it was having on his club career. Um, if that happened in reverse, that happens to an African player, the discussion is totally different. Absolutely. I mean, and you look at a lot of players over the past season. A lot of English players coming off England's long European journey, whether that's Harry Maguire, Luke Shaw, Mason Mount, you know, players kind of declining after putting in so much effort and becoming physically exhausted after that Euro mm-hmm. campaign. No discussion about that. Fact is, I mean, it's like you said, it's racist. The other thing that's, that's, that is that is a problem, Zach, imagine you're a country like Nigeria, I'll use an example, and you got a player who has dual nationality. He's both English and Nigerian, just to give an example. It makes it much harder for Nigeria to get that kid than it would be for anyone else because there's a punishment. And then there's also the punishment for a, this young player choosing to represent the nation where they're no longer, uh, you know, it, qualified as a domestic player because they're now representing Nigeria and not England. There seems to be a penalty for choosing African nations over European nations. Absolutely. I think that, look, FIFA's latest rule changes making it easier for players to switch over. I think that that has definitely helped. What was that routine, Zach? So I believe, you know, essentially allowing players such as Munir El Haddadi who had already played for Spain to play for Morocco. Um, a lot of players who, I guess, got a second chance at playing for Europe. I don't know the exact details of that rule mm. change, but... Um, take a look at that. Yeah, I'll have to take a look. Yeah, I think, and I think that's appropriate. You yeah. know, I think, uh, personally, I, I think uh, it's a bit of fun a player if you've represented a country once and there's no, no intention of ever picking you again that you can't go and, and, and change and play for another developing nation or someone else. The, uh, I mean, young, especially if you make that decision young, because a lot of times these, these decisions are motivated by 
clubs putting premiums. I mean, a perfect example being Jack Grealish and Declan Rice, both of whom played for Ireland as young kids, were rewarded. You know, there's a premium on English players. You, you represent England. Um, and you know that that helps you in terms of your transfer value and your valuation to other clubs because of obviously European assimilation with Champions League domestic, you know the requirements to have a certain number of domestic players and what have you. Um, do you think that maybe uh, UEFA could also help in that role where they're not punishing players and clubs for them representing player, you know, uh, nations outside of Europe. Absolutely. I think that FIFA has the power to do a lot of stuff in terms of, you know, allowing African players to represent the country without any hate, without any criticism. Fact is, they are just doing their jobs and they are serving their country. They're carrying out their boyhood dream. And it's absolutely disgraceful that any player has to endure uh, this kind of criticism as it between from Aurelio De Laurentiis. Um, so just going back to the rule change, players can now switch national teams provided they were eligible to play for a second country at the time uh, they first played for their first country, even if they had played in an official competition for the First Nation. So that rule change from uh, September 2020 has seen a lot more uh, dual nationality players switch over, not just with African nations, but plenty of others. Do you think that uh, the government, the football government, should be looking at the domestic um, domestic player requirements? Because to me, I think it's extremely unfair to punish someone based on where they were born. This football club can only play three non-EU players. Now, to me, I I, I don't really I, I understand what they're trying to say. Well, if we get more of our players playing, but to me, you play on merit. Not because you exclude someone based on um, punishment for being born in another part of the world. Um, you know, so you can't play because you were born in Senegal, but this kid who was born in Italy or born in England or Spain can play because he's, you know, he qualifies as domestic footballer. I think more could be done on that because I think that makes it uh, completely unfair um, on young. It, it, on young players who aren't being picked purely because of, forgive my parents here, the, the location of the vagina they were picked from. I, I just don't think that's fair. Um, listen, I, I think that this is one of those rules that has good intentions and, you know, in terms of wanting more English players to play for those teams. I think those, these domestic players, player rules have that intention. But fact is, Football is an increasingly globalized ecosystem where, you know, players from Africa, uh, South America, Asia, they are looking for that chance to play in one of Europe's top leagues. And I think that, yes, you have to look at that other side. The fact that a player, whether it's from the uh, from Africa or a different continent, you know, is not going to have as many chances as an English player. I think that you know, it's it's similar to this country's immigration laws. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of prioritize, prioritizing where you were born and not your ability as a player. Mm -hmm. Or yes. uh, a championship like the Premier League that claims to be based on merit. You know, we have the best players in the world. We have the best teams in the world. You are really restricting yourself. Um, but, you know, same case for a lot of different leagues. 
But yeah, and I think you know when you're talking about a globalized, monetized league um, that relies also, you know, a lot of these players are extremely lucrative to these football clubs. You know, if you get a young player, you get a, you get a, a George Weah. You know, the whole of Liberia is watching you. They're capitalizing on, they're monetizing it, but then you can be punished for being born there. I just think that's you know football. You can't have it both ways. I think it, it's totally unfair. Um, and it also is a motivating factor for high clubs buy players, same you know, uh, high clubs compensate players and what have you. Um, I think that is a really unfair metric. Um, I want to keep the conversation related to Italy because uh, Palermo come up. Uh, Palermo now fallen under the city football group. Um, Palermo Football Club have had some fantastic players in the past, Addison. Cavani being one, you know, um, uh, 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 Argentinian kid just going out of my head. Same for PSG. Paolo, or, sorry, I was going to say Paolo Dybala. Uh, Dybala was there. Uh, lots of fantastic players at that football club. Are they now becoming a, a, a basically a city feeder club? Listen, yeah. So first off, if you haven't yet, definitely check out a recent article on breaking the lines about the rise and fall and potential resurrection of Palermo by Tom Shelton. Very good read. Um, you know, with regards to Palermo, I, I definitely Pastor. think... Yeah. Pastore yeah. was the player I was thinking of. Sorry, go ahead. Yes. Pastor, Javier Pastore. Exactly. Yeah. Edinson Cavani, Javier Pastore, Paolo Dybala, mm -hmm. Andrea Barzagli. I'm missing a few, but some incredible players. I love it. Fair enough. Um, so, you know, a Sicilian club, not a mainland club, a Sicilian club. Um, I have a bit of pride in that as I'm uh, my mother's side, half Sicilian, half Southern Italian. So very good. Italian-American. My wife's grandfather's from Sicily. So, uh, yeah, Palermo, I feel like enjoying the best uh, spell of their entire history from 2004 to 2013 and uh, finished fifth or sixth, I think, quite a few times. Never, though, able to crack into the Champions League, you know, the prized competition, eventually getting relegated in 2013 after so many near misses in Europe, after so many failed opportunities. Um, and overall, one thing that has just marked the past decade since that is instability at the club. Instability with managers getting sacked left and right. Maurizio Zamparini making, uh, you know, completely whimsical and uh, irresponsible decisions as owner. Now you are following it. Now, you know, they've managed to go from the fourth division all the way back to Serie B in the second tier. They've won promotion. And they are now entering a new era under City Football Group. So I look at it both ways. I, I think that on the one hand, you are going from a period of absolute instability and you know uh, reckless decision making from Zamperini to perhaps a more organized uh, you know structure with City. On the other hand. You are also, you know, you are also giving up part of your legacy and becoming a puppet club to Manchester City. I can't imagine how that must feel for the fans, Zach, um, because 
must make it very difficult to believe that you know one of the fundamental principles of sport um interactions of sport especially in what we'd like to believe is a meritocracy where you can get promoted 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 and be successful is the belief that you can be successful and you feel like if you're someone like palermo once you get to a point where your players are really good, they're going to get picked off by City. Really interesting start to the start of the uh, Serie A. It wasn't a single draw, uh, of course, uh, in the entire league. Uh, and Milan, of course, champion starting off with a 4-2 win against Udinese. Um, but I want to particularly put my focus on Roma because uh, they've made some excellent signings this summer, in my opinion. Very, very, very good team. And I think in many ways, Zach, Mourinho has somewhat gone through a renaissance where after the Spurs uh, sacking, his stock was at an all-time low. And I think time has been kind to him with what happened at United, where you really could exonerate him. He's done an excellent job with Roma. He looks like he's completely committed and in love with that football club and, that, and the feelings mutual. Um, could we be seeing Roma as an outside bat to maybe put some pressure on Milan this season? Do you think that they're equipped to put a, to, to mount a, a title challenge? I don't think they. This is tricky to say uh, because the market still has two weeks left. You know, more players could arrive. I think that they are definitely threats to get top four. Not too sure about a title challenge, but honestly, top four, I think that is the next step for Roma under Jose Mourinho. You know, he has really captured the spirit of this city, of this football club, really given them a shot in the arm that they had been missing for kind of mm -hmm. five, four years now. Um, he has really been the perfect mixer for, you know, an underdog city who was waiting for a chance. And Mourinho you know, not an underdog, but someone whose reputation was on the downturn after unconvincing spells at Manchester United and Tottenham, where, you know, he just really failed to uh, prove that he was still one of the best managers in football. Now you're going to a club who is trying to get back within the big boys and the manager who is trying to prove that he still is one of them. I think that it's a really intriguing fit. And Roma, looking at the players that they've brought in this summer, uh, bringing in Turkish right-back Zeki Selic from Lille. Uh, Selic playing a big role uh, in Lille under Christophe Galtier as they won their first Ligue 1 title in a decade, uh, joining for 7 million euros. Pretty respectable fee, i got to say. In fact, the, he is the only player that Roma have paid a transfer fee for. Roma bringing in Paolo Dybala on a free transfer, Nemanja Matic on a free transfer, Mil Spieler on a free transfer, and Jorginho Wijnaldum on loan. Not sure if, if there's any loan fee attached to that, to that but uh, pretty impressive business, mm -hmm. i got to say. They've also been able to keep hold of players like Nicolo Zagnolo, mm -hmm. as well as Cami Abraham. Um, no major departures whatsoever, apart from Henrik Mkhitaryan. Frankly, you ask me, I'll, I'll, I'm taking Paulo Dybala 
over McDonald mm. any day if you notice that well, to him. Yeah. With regards to Mourinho, when you look at the great managers that have survived through football, one of their key attributes was their ability to evolve with the game so that they did not, uh, they didn't become a monolith. Um, look at Mourinho. Have we looked at, are we looking at a totally different Mourinho from the one we saw as a special one? You're talking about a guy that has evolved with football and we're seeing a different iteration of a Mourinho? I, look, I think that to survive, you know, you have to adapt, as you mentioned. You know, that is something that looking at his recent few gigs in the Premier League, Mourinho has been unable to adapt both in terms tactically as well as managing his talent and, you know, perhaps going with too much of an old school mentality with a lot of these players. Um, you know, I think that has definitely been uh, one of the roots of his downfall in terms of his relationship with uh, his past few dressing rooms, even looking back to Real Madrid. You know, I think that's one of those things he's perhaps had to tailor. And Roma, in fairness, I think is, is a bit different in terms of looking at the squad the makeup of these players, you know, a lot of them unproven, waiting for it, that chance to shine. You know, a lot of them have not reached the top level of European football. Now we're looking at transfer that's right, a transfer window that is seeing Jorginho Wijnaldum, Champions League winner, joining them. Nemanja Matic, Premier League winner, uh, joining them. And Paulo Dybala, Scudetto winner, joining them. I almost feel like, I don't know if it was after the Spurs situation when Mourinho's looked at himself and felt, I need to change. You know, I can't be the old Mourinho because my words don't carry the same weight. You know, I can't go into a dress room anymore and dominate it, right? Or maybe I'm going to have to not be as abrasive about things. Maybe it seems like his ego isn't quite what it once was. You know, we all change as we age. But I, I definitely see... A totally different Mourinho today than what I saw as the young Mourinho that showed up at Chelsea. And I think that's to his immense credit. To keep the conversation on Portugal, uh, Zach, if you go back to the era of Luis Figo, that was called the golden generation, right? Are we looking at another golden generation of young of port of, of Portuguese players? Because we talk look look at Fabio Vera, look at Mateus Nunes, uh the players that are all across Europe, young players, exceptional young players. Um, are we looking at another golden generation in Portugal? I think we are, Phil. I think that looking at players throughout positions, we are in a position of that, you know, you have to be excited about the future, the next five, ten years of Portuguese football. You know, in goal, you've got a... 22-year-old Diogo Costa, who has mm -hmm. broken through for Porto over the past season. He's been absolutely fantastic and has won a starting spot just a few months before the World Cup. You know, prior to that, hadn't even debuted for them. Now looks to be starting over Rui Patricio in goal. Plenty of other candidates as well, like Luis Maximiano, to challenge him. Um, central defense, I think, is, has to be the biggest question mark, shall we say, Ruben Diaz, yes, got, but apart from him, not too many players who are ready to step up in the void of Pepe, who's 39, 
you know, we'll see how much longer he's got. But uh, he continues to perform at the highest level for Porto and Portugal. And he's going to be absolutely essential for them in Qatar. But uh, not that many options. David Carmo, Porto, one of them, Gonzalo Inacio, Sporting, as well as a few mm. more. But uh, looking at the fullback positions, Joao Cancelo and Rafael Guerrero, and as well as Nuno Mendes, you know, these players are of the highest caliber in terms of fullbacks. Midfield, you've got Joao Palinha, Bernardo Silva, Mateus Nunes, Bruno Fernandes, Ruben Neves, <laughs> fantastic midfielders. And in attack, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, Andre Silva. It'd be interesting to see if Andre or Gonzalo Ramos. Of course, you Gonzalo Ramos. Is he ready? We'll, we'll mm-hmm. talk about him later. But, but uh, you know, players of that ilk, Rafael Leao. I think uh, young Fabio Vieira is doing well at Anderlecht. <clears throat> All right, uh, Fabio Silva, Silva, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Fabio Vieira at Arsenal. Yeah, as Fabio Silva's yeah, doing Fabio well. Silva, yeah. I do think could be I think that's a good move for him. At Underlecht, yeah, I, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I'm definitely not going to be on the plane to Cutter, but um, apart from him, Pedro Neto, some fantastic yeah. young players who I really think are ready to step up um, following Cristiano Ronaldo's uh, departure as well. You know, Pepe... We'll see what happens with, with him in terms of the other options. But Carmo, Ignacio, both of them, I think, could be options long-term. What do, you, what do you see happening with Ronaldo when he retires? Do you think he becomes a manager? Do you think he stays in football? It's an interesting one. I feel like Ronaldo, one, I think he just wants to spend time with his kids. You know, I mean, he clearly is a committed father and, you know, it, and would want to just spend time with his family. I honestly feel like I'm not sure if he'd get into management. I feel like he'd rather do stuff more commercial, like, uh, you know, working with sponsorships, advertisements, potentially starring in some movies or shows. But uh, I don't know. I, I feel like his brand will be so massive. You know, you look at all of these legendary players who, you know, are maybe just one or two years away. From retirement, right? Serena Williams, just two weeks away um, mm-hmm. from from retirement, is one of the greatest sportsmen of her generation. Uh, sports sports athletes, shall I say? Yeah. Roger Federer as well. Tom Brady, players who you know, even if they retired tomorrow, they would still have uh, a, you know a booming industry just in terms of their name, just in terms of. Michael Jordan. Yeah, you know, off the pitch. So, yeah. Maybe, I think we're just, you remember the Euro final where he got injured and he essentially took over on the sideline from Fernando Santos um, and was, looked like an awful lot like a manager. Obviously, he would have the aura. But being a great player and being a great manager are two completely different things. A plumber electrician are two completely different occupations. Um, and I think one of the things, if you looked at that Michael Jordan documentary that came out, if you ask Michael Jordan or Lionel Messi or any of the greats to write down on a bit of paper how they do what they do, most of them couldn't tell you, right? I mean, I know they have obvious things about discipline and repetition and everything, but it's really difficult to explain genius and recreate it. 
right? It's just there's just something about it that is unique to that individual that you can't replicate, and you can't turn another player into Cristiano Ronaldo. You probably they're probably born, um, but uh, you know we've seen players with these enormous egos, um, enormous reputations, and completely fail as a manager. Um, I mean Mourinho wasn't a great player. Lots of great managers were not great players. So I just wonder, when you're that great, you find it very difficult to accept lower standards than the ones you set for yourself. And not most people just aren't capable of doing that. And uh, maybe that's an obstacle to him being a, a manager. I mean, apart from Johan Cruyff, yeah. I look at the best players of all time, and I'm trying to think which have gone on to become successful managers Zidane maybe Z Zidane okay that's that's an example fair enough mm. uh he's done a fantastic job for sure both as a player as well as manager okay apart from Zidane and Cruyff you know yeah it's few few and far between um so I think that as you mentioned part of that is you know a lot of them thinking go out and replicate this god-given skill that I had as a player whether that's Thierry Henry or Diego Maradona, you know, it's it's hard to replicate that kind of genius. That's why I think looking at a lot of these managers, uh, a lot of them have just been more, shall we say, disciplined, hardworking, um, you know, technically sound rather than superstars. Looking at likes of uh, Diego Simeone, who's a tough mm -hmm. tackling midfielder. Looking at players such as and Antonio Conte, you know, similar, yeah. um, you know, that is more of the profile I think you are getting with a lot of these managers. Uh, let's do a quick uh, look through uh, some of the big leagues in Europe. What What is your expectation of what we will see in Serie A this season? Do you think uh, Milan favorite to win it? Uh, what would you say, if you to protect the winner of Serie A this season, who do you think stands as a favorite? So I, I'm going to have a tough time predicting winner, but I think that one thing that I will predict, Syria is going to have the most entertaining title race in Europe's top five leagues. Wow, that's a big claim. Why? Well, look, I look at the teams in, in this league. Napoli. Okay, fair enough. They've lost some very important players. Dries Mertens, Lorenzo Insigne, Kalidou uh, mm -hmm. Koulibaly, you know, but they've still, and, and they're set to lose Fabian Ruiz as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if the new recruits are going to be able to fill that void immediately, but uh, some very exciting players brought in nonetheless, Kim Min-Jae, Kara Kivachkelia. Yes, young Georgian kid, but we're going to talk to on him since you magnificent young talent. You have a tremendous article on breaking the lines on this kid. Yes, definitely uh, keep an eye out for that. Leo Ostergaard, uh, Norwegian kid from Brighton uh, to provide quality in central defense. They're linked with Kaylor Navas, uh, I believe is going to come uh, as part of the Fabian deal. We'll see what happens. Um, but could, you know, provide, I think, an option in goal. Remains to be seen what happens with Alex Moret. I believe he will stay following David Ospina's departure, but... Uh, We'll see what happens in goal for them. Juventus. Juventus. I'm very torn about this Juve side because so many games last season, 
they looked so laborious and, you know, struggling mm-hmm. to string together some basic uh, attacking moves under Max Allegri. I do feel like maybe the second time is not going to be as kind around as the first. Maybe Allegri is too old-fashioned for them um, in terms of freeing up the attackers going forward. But they've nevertheless brought in some very exciting players, such as Gleison Bremer, Angel Di Maria, uh, Paul Pogba obviously getting injured. I feel like they will be in the mix. Um, Milan, Inter, Fiorentina doing very good things under Vincenzo Italiano. And uh, as I mentioned, I think Roma will be in the fight mm-hmm. for top four. Most, you know, genuinely as well what happens with uh, Atalanta and Lazio. But uh, I, I think it's going to be a very exciting Scudetto race. I would genuinely love to see Roma be in a title race. I would love to see a Mourinho in a title race in Italy. I think it would be fantastic. Uh, quickly shift our attention to Spain. One of the things that I find quite interesting is if you're Real Madrid, I don't know if you need to go out and spend a couple of hundred million on players. I mean, they're offered to buy Mbappe, but you and Manny, I don't think Barcelona an immediate threat to them. I think it's a tremendous credit to them that their European champions, La Liga champions, still went out and invested heavily in their squad. Um, but Barcelona have done, done so too. Um, put pressure on Xavi. Uh, are Barcelona ready to mount the title challenge? I think that they are. I think that... Barcelona, looking at the players' caliber of players they've brought in, assuming they uh, they they complete and register the Jules Koundé deal as well as their other transfers, I think that they definitely have what it takes uh, to challenge Real Madrid for the title. Still think they need to sign a right back in the final two weeks, uh, potentially a left back as well. But you know, apart from that, look at their defense, Ronald Ronald Araujo. And Jules Kunde, for me, that's a very exciting defensive pairing. Remains to be seen what happens with the fullbacks. Midfield, uh, Frankie de Jong, again, remains to be seen what happens with him in the final two weeks, as well as Gavi, Francesi, uh, Pedri, Sergio Busquets. I, I like those options in the center of the pitch, for sure. And attack is, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how attack has gone from Barcelona's weakest area by far, to its strongest in the span of uh, less than 12 months. You know, just less than 12 months ago, their top scorer was right Memphis Depay. I think he finished as the top scorer last season. Now, their options, you've got Usmane Dembele renewing despite becoming a free agent, being able to leave to any team in Europe for no cost whatsoever, renewing his contract, for a lower salary. For me, one of the biggest wins of the transfer market for Barcelona. Signing Robert Lewandowski, you know, for once a center forward who's going to really, you know, put fear into the hearts and minds of every defense that he faces. A player who just has that aura about him. Fantastic goal scorer who's you know, going to be able to create space for other players and lead that line. I think that they had been missing that. Even with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang scoring so many goals, there were a lot of games where he just felt kind of anonymous. Lewandowski, though, going to provide that upgrade uh, in attack in, in terms of always being present. Um, but, yeah, I think in terms of the other deals, you've got Ansu Fati, 
Yeah. Flores, Memphis Depay. We'll see what happens with him as well as Martin Braithwaite. Um, but Rafinha, for me, one of the one of the steals of the transfer window. A player yeah. who has shown enormous quality in Portugal, France, and England. Um, a player who stepped up when Leeds needed him and in terms of producing and scoring goals uh, amid their injury crisis and you know pretty much leading them alongside Jack Harrison on the other flank, leading them to safety from tooth and nail. So he's a player who has you know, shown, I think, a lot of capability you know, in teams across the spectrum, whether that's fighting relegation like Leeds or pushing for Europe in the top four, top five, whether that's Vitoria or uh, Ren, you know, or Sporting. Um, so I think that he's a player who needed this move to a superstar club to take that next step in his career. And honestly, I'm, I'm very surprised that Barcelona won the race for him ahead of likes of Chelsea. Mm. Let me uh, ask you a couple of questions before we go. Um, so far, who do you think the signing of the summer is? In all of Europe? Anywhere. If you, if you had to pick a one cent and it stands out for you, maybe it's Rafinha, I don't know, would you say that is so far the most outstanding signing of the summer? Maybe it's Mateusz Nunes. I don't know. What would you say so far? Oof. Is a really tricky one. Is there any that stand out for you? Maybe not your favorite, but is there any that stand out for you where you're like, you know what, that's an exceptional saying, and maybe it's one under the radar. Um, I think that uh, Morgan Gibbs White, one the forest, will be a really, really good saying um, under the radar. Um, I think, uh, you know, Wolves were, uh, Lee Wolves lost him, of course, and um, I think uh, there's there's a couple of guys that uh that stand out for me that I really really like and I think is really really good business. Um, who would you pick out so far? It's a really interesting question. I think that looking across Europe, PSG have had a fantastic week. as well as Hugo Ekitike. Some very exciting business at the Parc de France. Um, but, you know, Italy, trying to think of some exciting si exciting uh, signings there. I think Bubacar Camera, Marabo Fuvilla, will be a really good signing. I also yeah. think if someone can get their hands on Joe Pedro from Watford, yeah. every time I've seen that kid, he really impresses me. Obviously, Gabi Jesus has looked really good so far. Um, but, um, you know, some of the ones that are less obvious to me. I'm going to put right now both Gabriel Jesus and Oleksandr Sinchenko have potential to be the signing of the summer for the Premier League. I think that what we've seen in their impact so far at Arsenal, their technical ability, their, you know, just ability to constantly want to win and put more goals on the score sheet. It's been fantastic to see. And I think that they're going to be two game-changing signings. Um, going back to my favorite league, the Portuguese league, um, you know, a lot of different players I could mention. I think Porto, um, Andre Franco is a really intriguing uh, option from Estoril to replace Fabio Vieira. And if you haven't yet, definitely check out my exclusive interview with Andre Franco from a few months ago on Breaking the Lines. 
Um, Sporting as well made some moves. I think probably the the most important one is going to be either Francisco Trincao returning mm-hmm. to Portugal, returning to working with Ruben Amorim, or Hidemasa Morita, Japanese midfielder who uh, will be expected to start tomorrow uh, in the Clásico um, alongside Manuel Lugarte against Porto. So Morita and Trincao, I think, both going to be starting uh, and uh, will be expected to have big games for sure. And Benfica have had quite a few, but for me, the biggest one is Enzo Fernandez. Uh, 21 years of age, joined from River Plate in the summer. I'll be honest, I watched him for the first time against Arauca, and within 45 minutes, I was in love with this guy. <laughs> a player who just, you know, a joy to watch. A player who can, you know, keep possession ticking, who is able to switch possession from one side to the other. Um, player fantastic going forward in his dribbles. A player who uh, scored three goals in three games, one goal in each game, as well as two straight volley goals. Thing of beauty. So I, I think that Enzo, I, I honestly think he will be challenging alongside either Meditaremi or Evan Nielsen from Porto uh, as the player of the season, if Benfica are in the title race, which I expect them to be. But finally, from Braga, and I think arguably the signing of the summer for me is Simon Banza. So one of the things that I've always stated, Phil, is that like the biggest market inefficiency when it comes to Portuguese football is so many teams do not recognize talent outside of the big three. Mm-hmm. And essentially say, you know, unless you are playing for Benfica, Porto, or Sporting, you are not good enough to play in the Premier League or La Liga. Um, we've seen more and more players, you know, change that with, for example, Miguel Crespo going from Estoril to Fenerbahce, uh, Chiquinho going to Wolves from Estoril, um, and... You know, uh, Samuelino going to Atletico Madrid, Beto going to Udinese. But overall, not many top teams uh, evaluating these talents outside of them. And Simon Banza, you know, 20, currently 26 years of age, just, just turned uh, 26 a few days ago. Um, a player who was born in France to, I believe, Congolese parents, came through Lens Academy, uh, ends up getting promoted with them. And, uh, you know, is kind of a sub, super sub um, until Famalicão come calling in 2021, get him on deadline day. Banza ends up going to, ends up finishing as Famalicão's top scorer in uh, last season with, uh, with 18 goals and seven assists in all competitions, 14 goals in the Primera Liga in just 29 appearances. Um, so pretty much a goal every two games. Uh, had a fantastic season for them on loan. And yet no club decided, maybe I should go get this kid, you know? And eventually it was Braga who ended up signing him for 3 million euros. 3 million uh, for a player who is coming off a very good campaign for, for Malikao in, in the Primera. Simon Banza so far, 
uh, you know, made his debut as a starter uh, against Sporting. Sporting opened opened the scoring within eight minutes. Uh, Simon Banza equalizes within 14 minutes when it ends up being a 3-3 draw between Sporting and Braga on opening day. Following match, uh, Simon Banza goes back to Pamalikao, his previous previous club, and uh, scores a brace against them in a 3-0 victory. So for me, you know, he's just a fantastic striker who I think is going to form a really exciting partnership in attack with another with with two, one of two um, other really uh, impressive young strikers, this Portuguese forward Vitor Vitinha Oliveira, who uh, I included in, a, a few weeks ago in, in my article uh, on what players I think are going to get big moves. Five players from five Portuguese teams who I think will get Premier League moves soon. Mateus Nunes was one of them, and he's already a Wolves player. So, a few more players, including Enzo Fernandes, in there. But, uh, but yeah, over alongside either Vitinha or Abel Ruiz, I think it could be a really interesting one-two partnership. You know, we've talked a lot, Phil, about kind of things that aren't in vogue, you know, that are anachronistic. One thing uh, I, I think that is, is perhaps going out of fashion but could have a rebirth in Portugal is that one-two pairing in attack, you know, two-striker partnerships. We've seen that have a lot of success with Porto, with Evan Nielsen and Meditaremi in attack last season, and with either Vitinha, Ruiz, or uh, Banza playing together, I think that uh, new manager Arthur George could have a lot of success at Paraguay. Last question for you, go. Christian Pulisic. Um, does he need a move from Chelsea? Does uh, does does Tuchel not fancy him? Uh, is he not developing? I know he's had some injuries. Uh, what's your take on Christian Pulisic? If I was him, if I was Christian Pulisic, I would be looking for a new club, whether that's on loan or a permanent permanent deal in the final weeks uh, of the summer transfer window. I think that Raheem Sterling's arrival as well as other potential arrivals, such as, you know, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang uh, is, is linked with a move. I think that Pulisic's game time and uh, his importance in attack is going to decline even more. He has never been able to establish himself as a starter under Thomas Tuchel, despite having experience uh, under him at Borussia Dortmund, I believe. Um, you know, he, he's never really been able to take that step, uh, despite ex- exhibiting that you know, a little bit during Project Restart being really important for Chelsea finishing top four. You know, apart from that, it's really been just spurts of individual mm-hmm. brilliance. You know, he's never been able to string together run of games. And I think that right now, looking at Chelsea's attack, I expect him to be behind Mason Mount, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Kai Havertz. Raheem um, Sterling. Raheem Sterling and potentially I, I, remains to be seen what happens with Hakim Ziyech mm-hmm. um, and Timo Werner obviously as well as Romelu Lukaku are gone um, but I would probably expect them to be you know fifth or sixth choice in Thomas Tuchel's attack and if I were him I'd be lining up a move elsewhere um, not sure if staying in the Premier League is what he needs right now though I gotta say I would oh. potentially consider Bundesliga if I were him, or another league. I'm, I'm not sure if he needs that spotlight right now, as well as 
that physical style. I think that's been a big cause of his injuries and probably the biggest reason why he isn't in you know, full form. Uh, and he hasn't been able to showcase that form at Chelsea is the injuries. He needs to be able to show that he's capable of staying fit uh, throughout a campaign, which he has not been able to do over the past few years. So look, I think that he needs a fresh start. I think that he is going to be a rotation level player if he remains at Stanford Bridge. Um, yeah, if I were him, I would definitely be looking for it. Yeah, I mean, there's been enormous pressure put on him here to be the next superstar uh, from, you know, 17, 18 years of age. So I can't imagine that's easy too. Zach, thank you so much as always, mate. Uh, we look forward to a fantastic weekend of football. Quick prediction from Man United Liverpool on Monday. Oof. I'm going to go with uh, Liverpool. Three. Oh, you're joking me. <laughs> Liverpool 3, Manchester United 1. Okay. Matches need to beat them. I need to go above them in the table. You know that. <laughs> Not a great um, system, but this is mm. the chance to beat up on the little guy. <laughs> oh my <laughs> lord! Offended. Hey, hey, I was, I was, uh, I was watching that Brentford game, and I know. I was, <laughs> I was there. PTSD. Man, thank you so much as always. Much, much appreciated. Don't forget, check this guy out at Zach Lowy at BTL. Uh, easily one of the best websites out there. Um, and uh, just so comprehensive in the coverage, very, very detailed. Mate, thank you so much. Take it easy, and uh, we'll be back next week.